The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. And welcome to What Goes Up, a weekly markets podcast. I'm Mike Regan, a senior editor at Bloomberg. And I'm Valdana Hyrick, a cross-asset reporter at Bloomberg. And this week on the show, well, when I was a kid, we didn't have the internet. We didn't have video games. There were only three channels on the TV, but we did have aluminum cans. So most nights in the warmer weather, all the neighborhood kids would gather in someone's yard and play a game called Kick the Can. And guess what? That's exactly what Congress did this week. They kicked the can down the road on the topic of raising the U.S. debt ceiling. And that has obviously been one of the issues that was causing investor sentiment to deteriorate in the last month. The markets have reacted euphorically, but was that really it? Was that all that was keeping benchmark indexes from returning to record highs? We'll get into it with the chief U.S. equity strategist at a big bank. And as always, we'll close out the episode with the craziest thing we saw in markets this week. So if you saw anything, call us on the Craziest Things hotline at 646-324-3490. Leave us a voicemail and maybe we'll play it on the show. Bill Donna, did you play Kick the Can when you were a kid? I didn't. And I I cannot even believe that this was a real game. Why? It's it's totally a real game. Because you could have used the ball, no? Like a soccer Uh, ball? The can was, I don't know why, eh, maybe, but the can was much better for some reason. It made the noise. You got, you would fill it with rocks and then you'd, you'd get that noise. Anyway. How would you close the can if you fill it with rocks? Well, you just drop the little pebbles inside and then it would make the, anyway. Okay. We're, we're, wow. It's we're, not, we're, it just sounds so fun. We're, <laughs> that sounded really genuine. I, I, anyway, maybe there's like a video version of kick the can you can play, but this is, this is what they refer to uh, uh, prop, this sort of problem solving. Like we saw in the European debt crisis when uh, every week they'd kick the can further down the road and the markets would go nuts and then the problem would return in a week and they'd kick it again. But um, let's get into it with our guest, shall we, Viltana? Viltana, did you know our guest also has a podcast? And not only that, her podcast has slides attached to it. I think we need slides with yeah. our podcast. Yeah, she's, a, she's an inspiration. And I listen to her podcast. She comes out with reports beforehand, then the podcast to tell you what the report was all about in, in a sort of quick snippet. That's, which I think uh, way, is great. A better, uh, way more organized than our podcast, which uh, I'm amazed it even happens some weeks with all oh, the me te- too. technical difficulties. Let's bring our guest in. Her name is Lori Calvacina. She's the head of U.S. equity strategy at RBC Capital Markets. Lori, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I mean, I'll say, you know, you guys know I've been a fan of this podcast in the past. And when you guys started putting that out, I think I did mine, you know, maybe like a year or so later. But um, you guys definitely helped get my creative juices flowing. So it's an honor to be here, you know, in, in many ways as a listener and, um, you know, as someone who's taken some inspiration from you guys. Oh, that's uh, nice of you to say. You're showing us up with the slides, though, Lori. I want to <laughs> I want to see how we can get some slides to attach it to ours. I have enough problems with the basic podcast cast technology. I'm not sure I want to add slides to it. 
Lori, it's, it's been a while since you've been on the show. I know you had a new baby. Congratulations. I'm jealous. I love babies. Thank you. He's uh, he's not a baby anymore. My pandemic baby is 13 months old now. Um, oh my but he's, gosh. Yeah, he's awesome. Hopefully he will, um, you know, he will, he will continue to do his cute little things for a while. But yeah, he's not a baby anymore. I had that realization. Well, that's growing that, up too fast. That's an adorable age. And enjoy them before they get old enough where they're roasting you on TikTok like my kids are. <laughs> very, uh, very unfortunate. But, but Lori, let's get into this whole idea. I know you spend a lot of time looking at um, and measuring investor sentiment. And it had really, you know, turned south there in September. It, it had really uh, gotten pretty poor. Um, you know, and it's always hard to tell exactly to sort of quantify and dissect what's causing it. Um, but we have seen this, you know, strong reaction to the market by the fact that Congress was able to at least postpone the the day of reckoning for the, the debt ceiling issue. Um, did that surprise you that that was that much of sort of a weight around the market's neck? I mean, is this clearing this out of the way? Is that enough to sort of say blue skies ahead or, or, or what? Well, Mike, I think, you know, you, you've kind of stolen my craziest thing, which was, you know, the reaction to the debt ceiling deal was, you know, sort of the crazy thing to me, because I had the same thought you did. That we knew that this was something that was weighing on investor sentiment. One of many things, frankly, you know, there's a pretty long list right now. But, I, you know, I think the, the conventional wisdom, right, is they always, you know, this, this issue comes up every few years. They always figure out a way to avoid financial Armageddon and get it done. And a lot of people, I was even out talking to clients this week about this issue, um, in person, actually. And, you know, the, the response is, well, they always get it done. You know, I, I've learned to sort of ignore this issue. There's a lot of noise. And then lo and behold, you know, we see this enormous reaction in markets today. So, look, I, I think it probably was a little bit different this time just because it, it did seem it just wasn't clear how they were going to get to resolution. It did seem like um, there was a little bit more than theater uh, this time around. So maybe that worry was a little bit deeper than a lot of us were letting on. And Lori, the debt ceiling was one of the things that was sort of weighing on markets up until now. And I'm hoping you can sort of talk about what else is behind the two-way volatility that we've seen from markets, where we're seeing these, you know, 1% up days, followed by 1% down days, followed by 1% up, up days. And, and what does it all mean for investors? So, look, I, you know, I think if we're just thinking about the past, maybe like two weeks, because I think that question might have a different answer if we went back, you know, to kind of a month ago. But I think over the past couple of weeks, I think the, the sort of jarring move that we had in the Treasury yield, uh, the 10 year yield was something we certainly heard um, about uh, from a lot of investors. Um, and, you know, when it's always, you know, when you kind of get into these discussions with people, it's never the direction or the magnitude of the move. It's the speed of the move that tends to, to sort of freak people out. I think we did have a very quick move here. Um, and, you know, we, we did an investor survey um, at the end of September and we actually give people a write in question and we say, you know, what keeps you up at night? What's on your mind? And we had one person write into that survey as their free response. Um, sort of the, a rapid rotation from growth back to value, which we're not positioned for. And so I think it's also, it, it's not just what's happening on the macro variable. It's the fact that it happened quickly and people weren't set up for it. And you saw a fierce rotation out of technology stocks, which have been the, you know, the long-term favorites of a lot of investors. And I think people sort of knew in the back of their heads, you know, we think rates might go up. We think financials are going to catch a bit. But the fact that it happened so quickly that everybody's favorites talks in the stocks in the tech sector flipped so quickly. I think it was just a combination of all of that um, that really jarred markets over the last week or so. 
Well, talk to us about that notion of, of growth and value. I mean, it's it's obviously been the dilemma all year. Right? You know, how long will will value outperform, and then it stopped outperforming, and and now you know it looks like the conditions are in place for for that you know to that trade to come back. I mean, are are we poised for some more value outperformance going forward? Do you think? I think so. And, and we've, we've tried to not be too cute in our recommendations. You know, we're sort of stopping the conversation in terms of, you know, we like value, we like growth. We're, we're trying to say just have exposure to both. We think it's going to be a very choppy leadership environment over, say, the next year, year and a half. So that's how we've positioned everything. But I think the really interesting conversation is, you know, sort of why and the different time frames we see. So really, since I think kind of early August, we changed all those positioning calls and the framework we tried to lay out was at the time, at least we said, look, there have been some very clear pressures on the value trade that have caused people to shift back into growth. And at the time, it was the Delta variant. Um, It was some of the supply chain pressures, which were having an impact on value earnings revisions. Um, And a lot of it was COVID, to be honest. Um, That was there was still a lot of uncertainty there, you know, influencing things like the Michigan sentiment data. Um, But we said, look, you know, we're going to come out of this. We think Wall Street has not really, you know, sort of properly baked in a lot of the things we went through at the end of the summer, but we're going to come out of that. And when we come out of that, we think you'll see another big kind of intermediate term pop in the value trade. Um, And we said, you know, it's we think it ends sometime, you know, sort of mid to late next year. So there's an expiration date on that trade. Um, And we think growth leadership will eventually take over again late next year. But that was really the framework we tried to to put out there was, yes, we are going to get another big move in the value trade. Don't get too comfortable in it. Don't expect it's going to be the beginning of kind of a five year type cycle because growth is going to take back over. But we're going to have this sort of nice, you know, kind of move in, in financials and energy and things like that for a while. The interesting, you know, sort of setup for me was if you if you kind of look at the valuation data, there's a lot of room for value to beat growth. There's a lot of room for cyclicals to do well versus secular growth. I look at small caps, right? Small caps are still very cheap versus large caps. So we said, you know, the the, the room is there from the valuation perspective. We knew that COVID trends had been driving a lot of those trades, and, and our biotech analyst was making a call that COVID cases would peak shortly after labor after Labor Day. So we said that will give you a catalyst to let that value trade move higher. Um, And then the last thing we really talked about was just what do you expect from the economy next year? And when you're in a hot economy, which is one that tends to run above average, the average is about two and a half percent. Um, you tend to see value outperform, small cap outperform, cyclicals outperform. And, And even though some of the 2021 economic numbers have been knocked down, consensus for next year is still sitting comfortably above four percent. So uh, you know, kind of the valuation room, a catalyst from COVID trends improving, and a hot economy that will allow those cyclical, you know, parts of the market to, to really have some good fundamental support for next year. That was really kind of the three ingredients we saw for that intermediate term value pop. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Yeah, let's let's unpack that a little bit on small caps. I know you you started out as a small cap analyst uh, in a previous life, right? So I know it's uh, probably dear to your heart the uh, the smaller companies. 
you know, to me, I don't always think of small caps uh, in the same breath as as value stocks. But I guess, you know, if you look at the weighting of the Russell 2000, I mean, heavy on on financials, heavy on energy. So from a sector's perspective, you know, they certainly seem to potentially benefit from the same type of uh, tailwinds that, that would uh, boost the value stocks in, in the large cap indexes. How are you thinking about small caps going forward? I mean, it also feels like um, the uh, revitalization, the rebound in earnings for small caps has been sort of deferred a little bit into the future compared to large caps. I mean, is it kind of uh, the time for the, for small caps to shine, given all these factors? And I, and to, to make it a 12-part question, I know the um, you know earnings, earnings estimates for small caps can be a little bit more volatile than uh, than large caps, and and so I don't know if that plays into your thinking at all. But you know, how are you sort of thinking about small caps going forward, given given all these sort of catalysts that potentially could help them out? Yeah, it's, it's a great question, and you know, I, I sort of describe small cap as my first professional child. Um, you know, <laughs> I, I spent seven years as a small cap strategist at a couple different shops, um, and now I kind of do I do everything the broad market, and I still do small caps. But there's a, a certain fondness for me there, and I often feel like it's the lens through which I can really understand what's going on in the market. I, I do think that a lot of things are clearer there than they are in S and P five hundred land. Um, and look, I think with small cap. And people hate it when I say this, um, but I, I really don't think earnings matter that much. Um, you know, I, I think the reality is that small caps have so many companies with losses, and now it's obviously more now than in the past. Um, but the reality is there's really no good way to calculate the EPS growth of the Russell 2000. I come up with ways to do it to satisfy client requests, frankly, um, and to try to help my clients, you know, put some numbers around something that's very difficult to put numbers around. But I, I've just realized over time that's just not what the stocks trade on. The, the stocks tend to trade on higher level macro variables. And the only way the earnings, I feel like, really sort of seeps in is when you sort of look at it from a quality perspective and people want higher quality. So then the sheer number of companies with losses will push people out of that space into bigger caps. Um, but and I think that's certainly something that hurt small cap over the summer. The nervousness around the COVID outlook, the Fed, a lot of other things pushed investors back towards higher quality stories. And that pulled some of the multi-asset investors out of small cap. But that's really the only time I think you really want to pay too much attention to earnings. I think earnings is more of a stock selection issue within small cap for active managers, as opposed to a reason to get in or out of the asset class. Um, but, you know, to kind of go back to your original question, I think small caps and value are not always the same trade. I think they are the trade, the same trade right now. If you look at how uh, large has performed versus small and growth has performed versus large within the Russell 1000, so the large cap lens, both of those trades have been moving in tandem with the rate of change in COVID cases in the U.S. Um, that's been true for small caps since last November. It's been true for value growth since March. Um, but the last like six, nine months or so, they are both trading on one of the same economic variables. They are also both very sensitive to interest rate direction. And this is something we've seen over time that when the 10 year yield is going up, it doesn't really matter why it's going up. Small caps tend to outperform and value tends to outperform. And if you sort of think about why those relationships are there, um, I think right now, uh, financials is, is a huge influence on both the small cap space as an asset class and uh, the value trade. And so interest rates go up, financials tend to outperform. It's pulling both of those parts of the market up right now. Um, and I, I would just sort of, you know, put it a slightly different way. When we, we talk about small cap looking cheap versus large cap, um, it's a really, really compelling chart that we put together on that. You're really at historic valuation opportunities in small versus large. 
When you go and look at it sector by sector to figure out what's driving that valuation differential, it's not things like healthcare. Um, it's it's the financial sector. It's the energy sector. Um, it's these kind of you know value oriented parts of the market that are have a very heavy presence in small cap now that are really driving that valuation differential. So there is a lot of overlap in those trades right now that we might not nor- not not ordinarily see. I'm glad you brought up financials because I had noticed in one of your notes recently where you said ahead of Fed hikes, you tend to see some value in some small caps outperforming. So I'm hoping you can walk us through what can work well in in the environment now where people are anticipating a Fed taper and then eventually Fed hikes. So I I do think the taper was largely priced in in the second quarter of the year. Um, And if you kind of go back and you think about the sort of conversation that was happening among economic the economists um, and rate strategists. And there was, you know, sort of this, this kind of pounding the table of the Fed is behind the curve and they need to taper because inflation is getting out of control and they're going to eventually wake up to this risk and pull their timetable forward. But that was a big conversation happening in kind of March and April. And that's actually when we saw the value trade, you know, kind of uh, start to underperform. And we, after having had a big run and also small caps mysteriously at the time, seemingly, peaked versus large cap. And we sort of put some of those trades that had been doing very well and that normally do well going into a hiking environment, they suddenly, you know, just stopped working. Um, And I think as we go back and look at the data, we think sort of the deterioration you were starting to see in some of the COVID stats contributed to that. But I also think it was just Wall Street figuring out that the taper was coming sooner rather than later, despite what the Fed was saying. And, you know, if you go do back and look at the taper we had, you know, sort of the 2013, 2014 timeframe and that announcement. And then when we actually did the taper, um, we saw those traditional, you know, kind of rate hike trades flip. Um, So normally you get into a rate hiking cycle, small peaks versus large value does very well going into the hiking cycle. And then growth leadership takes over once hikes begin. And that's exactly what happened back in the taper uh, during 2014. And we really essentially saw those trades take root again in second quarter of this year. Um, but, you know, what we had before, right, was this sort of interesting intervening period between the taper and the hikes um, where a lot of these risk trades started to work again. Um, and now, you know, essentially, I think we're sort of in this holding pe- period, right? I think the market is going to enjoy uh, the cyclical spirits that make the Fed confident enough to hike rates. Um, so we've got above average GDP in place. That's something you normally see before and early on in a Fed hiking cycle. Um, we've got very lofty levels of ISM. That's something you also tend to see before the hikes actually, you know, start to happen. Um, and, you know, what unfortunately we tend to see is when the hikes themselves start, ISM usually ends up peaking during the hikes or shortly thereafter. And GDP grows from being above average to below average shortly after the hiking cycle. So the markets start to say, you know, the Fed always cools off the economy and pulls some of that that froth out. And markets start to anticipate it. And so these parts of the market that benefit from that really hot economy they start to discount it in advance, even of it happening. So, you know, I, I think that the Fed, unfortunately, I think is what puts the expiration date on these cyclical trades. You know, Lori, I I think the one interesting sort of difference uh, in this latest episode over the last year or two has been the, the enormous fiscal response, uh, you know, in, in addition to such a huge uh, monetary response from the Fed. We, for once, we saw a, a really huge fiscal response from from the Congress and the presidents. Um, that tailwind's obviously wearing off. Um, I, I wonder how much 
optimism was priced into the market about whether it be an infrastructure deal, uh, the, the Biden three and a half trillion spending package. You know, at this point, it doesn't look like we'll necessarily get either one. I mean, or at least I wouldn't bet on it. Possibly we'll get some kind of, of narrowed down uh, package that would be sort of above trend government spending. But, you know, what's priced into the market? Has the market, in your opinion, just written off the sort of an above average uh, fiscal spend going forward at this point? I think it's such a great question, Mike. And, and when we sort of think about the risks to our view and something that could cause the value in small cap trade to have an extended cycle, I always point people to fiscal policy. And, and the reason I point people to it is just my conversations with investors this year, they're absolutely focused on tax. They don't like corporate tax hikes. A lot of the buy side is already baking this into their numbers, not the sell side, but the buy side. But nobody on the buy side or even the sell side, frankly, in my conversations, at least, wants to give the economic forecast um, or the fundamental forecast any kind of credit for anything coming out of Washington on the fiscal side. And, you know, I, I the things I tend to hear are, well, it's too spread out. It's going to happen over a 10 year period. So it's not going to have, you know, too much of an impact. Or, well, the dollar value in the context of the size of our economy just really isn't big enough to move the needle. Um, you know, so we'll hear that a lot. Um, and then, you know, people will also say, well, the, the negative impacts of tax hikes are going to offset anything that you would get. And I just hear that time and time again. And, you know, I used to joke back in, you know, sort of April and May, like I, I felt like I was a policy analyst because when I was discussing the year ahead, year ahead outlook in an hour meeting, we'd spend 40 minutes on corporate tax reform. And that's not even an exaggeration. Um, but then I would try to talk to people when Biden's uh, jobs plan and, and families plan came out and he put the white papers out. We did a whole analysis and nobody wanted to talk about them. <laughs> and, you know, I, I, I've told people, you know, you may be right on infrastructure, you know, with industrials and materials. People also say it crowds out private investment. Fine. You know, I get that. But I think that the sort of some of the details in the budget reconciliation bill are so interesting from a consumer perspective. And, you know, you mentioned I have a 13 month old. But I also have a five year old. Um, and so, you know, I see sort of the, the provisions about paying for uh, daycare or, or pre-K um, and, you know, just the, the sort of idea of putting some, you know, money back in consumers pockets. And we just went through an episode, you know, with with the pandemic where the stimulus payments, we saw impacts on credit card spending. Um, you know, the companies were talking about discrete impacts that they've seen from stimulus. Um you know, it, it just sort of is interesting to me that we just lived through that and saw, you know, giving consumers some extra cash, having a direct impact on their spend. Um, and, and people are just not thinking about this at all when it comes to that budget reconciliation bill. So I've described it as a show me story. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not the one to make the economic projections, but I do think, you know, if we think about what could make my call wrong and extend that cyclical trade longer, the upside risk, I do think, lies in fiscal policy. If we get those bills passed, um, could they they cause you know some surprises to the upside on the economic side, or could from a corporate perspective they change consumer spending patterns, give certain consumers more money to spend that has an impact on bottom lines? The market's not prepared for that. Well, Lori, all I have to say is a 13 month old and a five year old is good spacing. I can tell that I I can tell why you're a strategist now because you never want to have two in diapers at one time, and I think you space them out uh, appropriately. I, I Veldana, I did I made the opposite mistake. I had too too many babies in diapers at once, and it's it's can be overwhelming. I know you're worried about uh, college costs, Mike. Oh yes, absolutely. It, let, let's. Uh, I'll, try, be, I'll never bring it up again. I'm sorry. I'm you're trying to give me a heart attack. Trying to give yeah. you a heart attack. 
Countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Speaking of Lori's uh, research, uh, Lori, your research reports are just some of the best. I, I always read them all the way through. I flip through all your slides. I, and I know you have a new survey out, which you do from, from time to time. But the most recent one, I think it was titled, The Mood of the Market Has Gotten More Pessimistic, But Investors Are Still Buying Value. And you had found that pessimism overall has sort of continued to rise, although it's it's down from past peaks. But I'm hoping you can walk us through some of the, the things that you found and, and what else has stood out to you from what you're hearing from people. Yeah, you know, I thought it was I thought it was really fascinating um, that the, the overall mood of the market was, you know, just just not as not as chipper as it was, you know, sort of earlier in the year. We've sort of seen that progressing over the last couple of surveys. Um, but investors still seem to be on board with this value trade um, and specifically the financials and energy, which I think makes sense. Those areas are not at the epicenter of, you know, sort of supply chain concerns. Um, I'll take, you know, just kind of going back to the topic of taxes, because I do think, you know, when you talk to people about the case for a pullback in markets late in the year, and we've been in that camp as well. But I find a lot of people are pointing to this idea of corporate taxes and that it's not been baked in and it's going to be this big, huge, you know, sort of disaster for corporate America longer term. And we just asked the investors in the survey, we said, you know, what do you think this does to earnings? What do you think this does to performance? And we always give people we try to give people five choices on, you know, sort of most of these questions. And it'll be sort of an extreme bull and an extreme bear and then kind of a moderate bull and a moderate bear and then kind of a neutral. That's how we always try to lay everything out. And we found that on the question of corporate taxes, most people, um, I think it was about two thirds, maybe on on each of the questions. We asked about earnings independent from performance. And we found that most people were in that camp saying, yeah, it's going to be a one to four, you know, one to five percent hit uh, to performance. It's going to be a one to five percent hit to earnings. Um, And I thought that was so interesting because it's not sort of the disaster scenario um, that a lot of people have laid it out to be. Market, if it happens, markets will price it in and readjust and then move on. Um, the other thing, you know, that I thought was so interesting, we asked some questions on supply chains, which, of course, has been the kind of big freakout point post Labor Day for a lot of investors, especially in the industrial material space. And we've just been hearing a lot of negative commentary around that. But we found sort of a general vibe. You know, most people are, you know, I would say are more worried about second half 2021 numbers as opposed to 2022 numbers. But when we asked people, you know, kind of how worried are you about this? Most people picked the, you know, I'm worried, but I'm not panicked. Um, I think we'll get some some downward revisions and misses, but it's not the end of the world. And, you know, it just goes to show me that people are taking some of these concerns in stride. Yeah, I'm I'm not sure how everyone's too worried about Biden being able to get a tax hike through Congress. I don't see him him getting that through Congress, but maybe I'm I'm just being too cynical with all the, the, the moderates in Congress if they're. If they're stopping everything else, I don't see how that gets through. But I mean, I, it's certainly a risk you, you have to to think about. Um, well, Lori, uh, before we get to the crazy things, they passed a law where all 
financial podcasts have to get the guests' take on inflation this year. Um, quickly, in, in just a few seconds, I mean, you know, boy, we saw the natural gas prices in Europe just go through the roof. We're, you know, commodity indexes are high. Transitory is looking a little less transitory than, than maybe everyone thought. How big of a race uh, of a risk is inflation or stagflation really in, in your mind? Um, or is it just a matter of picking the beneficiaries of, of a rising price environment? Yeah, I, I'll say, you know, maybe I'll put my small cap hat back on again. Um, you know, I sort of, you know, took took one very important lesson when I first launched as a small cap strategist. I remember one longtime investor told me, um, portfolio manager in the space who had been around for years, um, said small caps are inflationary. And small caps do well in inflationary environments. And, you know, if you sort of think about the birth of Russell, right, and, and the Russell index as it came at the, the those indexes start at the end of the 70s, right? So they were they were created for a reason. And if you go and you look at the data, small caps um, tend to outperform when inflation expectations are high and rising, or if you look at the CPI data, and it, it is it is a testament to the fact that they are more responsive to the underlying cycle and health of the economy that's enabling that strong inflation. Than they are to the pricing pressures and the mar- and the margin pressures and small caps do I think have more pricing pressure or pricing power rather than people give them credit for, but to me I feel like I know what to do in that environment and it's it's by the small caps it's by the financials it's by the energy stocks and they deserve to be bought based on where the valuations are so I'm not overly worried right now my, my again I'm not the economist so we don't do a forecast on inflation. But my hunch is that it will be, you know, sort of more elevated than it was previous to the pandemic, not as bad as it is now. And you'll see you'll see things come down as as demand starts to normalize. And I also, you know, I read a lot of earnings call transcripts. I know we've talked about on this that on this podcast before. We're still reading those transcripts. And, you know, if you think about it from a margin perspective and a corporate profitability perspective, the company since 2018 have just been hemming and hawing about all the, the, the margin pressures and inflationary pressures and supply chain pressures and tariffs. And they do a marvelous job of managing through. Um, given hedging, the tools at their disposal, they are constantly sucking costs out of the system and the margins have been fantastic. So I, I, I try not to overly react. I, I feel like I just want to focus on I know what to do. And then, you know, I kind of I don't love the term stagflation. But, you know, when I sort of look at the growth backdrop separately from the inflation question, the high frequency indicators that sort of softened at the end of the summer are stabilizing. And even back to work is starting to perk up. Uh, we've got kid vaccines coming um, soon, um, hopefully. Um, we've got some good news on that this week. Um, I think that will help restore some of the confidence that's taken a hit in markets late over the summer. Um, and so I think that we are really not at risk of a recession. Um, I, I think that we are just working through um, some challenges you know, from a, a supply chain perspective. Um, but I, I do think companies tend to get through these. So I, I, I try not to worry about all this too much. Stand clear of the craziest things we saw in markets this week. Well, Vildana, one supply chain that has continued to be very robust is the supply of crazy things in markets. How about that? How about that segue? That that was that was really good. I'll give you that. And this week in particular had so many crazy stories. It was really hard to pick. All right. Well, did you start then? Oh, sure. Well, I saw that Burger King has chickenless chicken wings or or chicken nuggets coming. I saw that Best Buy has some sort of uh, uh, program you can pay for that sort of helps you get around supply chain issues. I don't know if you saw any of those stories. 
I, I have not. No. Oh my gosh, there was just so many really interesting things happening. So with Best Buy, you can buy like it, you you pay one hundred ninety nine dollars a year, and you can jump the line to to get certain products, but they don't exactly tell you which products. But anyway, the craziest thing that I chose was actually from a Matt Levine column, and the title of the article was "Is the stock market open at three a.m.?" This startup says it should be. So there's a company called 24 Exchange, and it's looking for SEC approval to offer round-the-clock stock trading 365 days a year, on all the holidays, overnight, all the time, just like the crypto markets. And to me, that was one of the most interesting things I've seen in, in, in a really long time, because I know we've talked about it on the podcast before. That means you'll have to cover the stock market 24 hours. Right. So I'm not, I'm not in favor of that. <laughs> I'm having anxiety just thinking about it. <laughs> uh, but, absolutely. But yeah, it was, it was really interesting. Yeah. Let's, let's all uh, write to our congressman or something to make sure, make sure that doesn't happen. How about you, Lori? What's the craziest thing you've seen? Oh, gosh. I mean, to be honest, I, I haven't sort of noticed, frankly, any sort of like weird, quirky thing this week in terms of like trading or story. Um, and, and we already talked about, you know, what I, I was. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Know, sort of, yeah. The, the market reaction just like, yeah, maybe this was all about the debt ceiling. Um, but look, I'll tell you sort of the, the sort of uh, most unusual, sad and heartwarming thing all in one. Um, that I saw earlier this week. Um, my former boss, uh, Tobias Levkovich, who I guess has technically been a competitor the past few years for me, um, passed away on Friday after you know a car accident about a month ago or so. And um, for those of you who know him, um, it was just an incredibly emotional time. Um, this man touched so many people in so many different ways and was so beloved. And, you know, I'm not the biggest fan of social media. Um, I deleted some of my accounts a few years ago. Um, I don't spend a lot of time there, but um, the outpouring that I've seen on Twitter and LinkedIn, um, you know, there, if you just go in and search for Tobias Levkovich on there, especially on LinkedIn, there are some amazing tributes um, that have been posted and comments and the reach that this man had and how beloved he was by so many different people in different corners of the investment community. I mean, it, it just does go to remind you, um, this is truly a community. It is truly a small world. Um, and I, th I thought it was, you know, an unbelievably heartbreaking thing that happened, but just the outpouring and, and how he impacted so many people um, was just so touching. Absolutely. Uh, a man whose reputation really uh, is AAA rated, uh, as far as I can tell. And and not only that, Lori, but it's not easy to keep a job as a strategist for 22 years or however many, he, you know, so, you know, you know, he's doing something right to keep a job that long. So uh, we'll, we'll certainly miss him. And well, I'm his, glad he brought that up. the uh, panic euphoria model at at City that he he was sort of in charge of has been renamed the Levkovich model. I think I saw a note this week saying that. Oh, that's good. That's that's good. That's amazing. You know, if there's one thing about him, he was always willing to take on a consensus argument and, and challenge the consensus and say what he believed. He used to say, it's my job to tell people what they need to know, not what they want to hear. And that model absolutely embodied his spirit. Yeah. So that's, that's incredibly fitting. Certainly an influencer uh, since long before that became a term, I think. So uh, uh, my con our condolences to, to his loved ones. Um, and uh, I'll try to cheer us up a little bit here with my crazy thing. Uh, Phil Thought, I know you're a Jersey native, so surely you you must have some familiarity with one Mr. Bruce Springsteen. So my, my crazy things via my friend John Miller pointed out a story in Rolling Stone 
There's a bunch of Springsteen memorabilia going up for sale at one of the auction houses. I forgot to write down which one. So it's time to play Price is Right, Vildana and Lurie. The handwritten manuscript for the song Thunder Road, one of the boss's most classic songs ever, was written in pen across four notebook pages. Uh, The final page actually has uh, two different versions of the opening verse, which is kind of interesting. It's going up for sale. Uh, We don't know what it'll sell for, but they've given us an estimated range. So, Laura, you go first. What's your bid for the handwritten manuscript of Thunder Road lyrics? Oh, I have no idea. I mean, like pre-pandemic inflation or post-pandemic inflation? Um, (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. $50,000? Was it for a charity? I don't know. uh, I'll say 50. That's a good question. I don't know. I'm going to keep a poker face. Vildana, what's your bid for uh, the Thunder Road manuscript? So you get the whole notebook or you just get... You you get four pages. Oh, four Uh, pages. You're like, I want the the whole notebook. You want... Right. Because who... You never know what else is in the notebook. But you would be like taking interview notes in the empty pages of it, probably. Yeah, for sure. Uh, uh, yeah, from the podcast. I always take yeah. notes from the podcast. Um, I, I was going to say 20,000. 20,000. Yeah. yeah. You're frugal when it comes to stuff like this. Though, it's a notebook. Say. All right. Well, Lori, um, no, well, it's the it's the handwritten lyrics to Thunder Road. Come on. <laughs> Lori, I got to tip my cap to you. They're estimating between 50,000 and 70,000. I personally ah. think it's going to go for a lot more, but we'll have to check back on that. The auction's at the end okay. of October. So I, I don't know. A lot of boss fans out there. Uh, a lot. I know a lot of Wall Streeters who are big Bruce fans. I could see it going for more than that. But but uh, as far as the estimated price, Laura, you pretty much nailed it on the head there. That's impressive. Excellent. Excellent. Hopefully my S&P target will be on just <laughs> <laughs> And with that, I think that is all the time we have. Uh, Laurie, so great to catch up with you. Uh, always been a good, such an interesting guest on the show. And uh, can't wait to have you back someday. Well, thanks for having me. I look forward to it. Thank you, Laurie. What Goes Up? We'll be back next week. And so then you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal website and app or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts so more listeners can find us. And you can find us on Twitter. Follow me at Reganonymous. Vildana Hyrick is at Vildana Hyrick. You can also follow Bloomberg Podcasts at Podcasts. And thank you to Charlie Pellet of Bloomberg Radio. What Goes Up is produced by Topher Forges. The head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy. Thanks for listening. See you next time. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.